I'm Thomas Hughes. I'm a historian here at the School of Advanced Air and Space Studies at Maxwell Air Force Base in Montgomery, Alabama. I teach military history. I teach air power history here at the school. I've done so in this area for close to 20 years. People have thought of flying for millennia, but it's not a real possibility until the Wright brothers fly at Kitty Hawk in 1903. Then things moved fairly rapidly, particularly through the First World War, where virtually every component that we think of in terms of military aviation has its debut in battle, from observation and intelligence and reconnaissance to close air support to the interdiction of the battlefield and the interdiction of supplies to strategic bombing. That war lasts long enough, and there's enough development in aviation during that war to promise many things for aviation. But it ends rather abruptly in November of 1918, just as air power is reaching a critical mass, both in terms of numbers and in terms of technology and the quality of the airplane and the experience of the flyer. And that led in the interwar years in the 1920s and 30s to a very rich debate in the United States and the United Kingdom and most of the Western powers at the time about how best to leverage air power in a military environment in the next war. That debate generally revolves around the extent to which air power should be designed as a supporting unit to the broader military machine of the day to support ground armies and to support naval action. On the one hand, and the other side of the debate was those people who felt that air power should be used more independently and autonomously to reach a decision in war independent from the fighting on the ground. And this was seen as one of the ways to avoid the tragedy of the trench warfare in the First World War, where so many people died to seemingly little political effect. The people who are advocating independent missions for air power tend to be the flyers. They also want an independent service for themselves, which some of these countries gained already in the, in the Great War. Great Britain, for instance, has an independent air force from the Great War forward. But in the United States, it's not an independent service. It's part of the United States Army. And this mission for an independent air force is very much tied to this autonomous and independent mission for air power in terms of its doctrine. In the United States, here at Maxwell Air Force Base, in the 1930s at the Air Corps Tactical School, the doctrinal idea of independent strategic bombardment takes root as a part of this debate and as a part of this move for an autonomous air service. It rages uh, in the hallways here and in the hallways of Congress where in the interwar period of time, somewhere between 13 and 15 independent commissions and congressional committees look at the question of the organizational relationship of airmen to the broader army. It's a very active debate, not settled by the time World War II comes. But there have been great strides in the material and technological underpinnings of air power. In particular, you have large four-engine bombers that can carry a fair amount of ordnance, a fair amount of distance to bomb independently of ground forces. There's still a whole lot of air power devoted to the support of ground forces, but in the United Kingdom and in the United States, this idea of an independent mission is alive and well, and they they believe they have the equipment to pull that theory off in the real world. Then you have World War II, and it's the second laboratory for airmen as they are experimenting. 
what they learn in that second experiment following the first Great War is that the theory of strategic bombing and the theory of independent air power had an internal logic that performed well in a classroom setting and sometimes performed well in controlled interwar exercises and war games. But when you had a live, vigorous, capable defender and enemy shooting at you and trying to impede your strategy, the independent bombardment of Germany doesn't work out quite as well as the theory might have suspected. Bombers have a harder time getting to their target than pre-war theorists thought. They have a harder time hitting their target once they get to the target. Their accuracy wasn't as good. And the German economy is more resilient, is stronger, is more recuperative than the theory held in the interwar years. So the early years of strategic bombing in World War II don't go particularly well. What they find by the end of the war is what they really need to make strategic bombing work is massive numbers of planes and massive bombs and massive raids becoming the massive attrition warfare in the air that pre-war air theorists thought they were not going to do. What happens is that the attrition warfare really just moves from a place on the ground and in the trenches to a place in the air at high altitude. So the second major experiment in aviation history, World War II, ends in some ways like the first one does. Lots of development, lots of successes, not quite the way in which the theory might have held the success to occur. I'd never want to make the argument that strategic bombing doesn't matter in World War II in Europe or in Japan or in the Pacific. It took longer, it took more resources, it took more men than they had anticipated. So this basic question of how best to use air power in military environments remains alive and well after World War II, just as it had after World War I. And they're going to continue this debate forward into the Cold War era. The Cold War era represents a stark geopolitical break from the era that birthed the two world wars, where there was a multipolar environment and real balance of power politics dominating the scene in Europe to a bipolar world in the Cold War where you have these two strong countries that sit in geopolitical juxtaposition one to the other, the Soviet Union and the United States, and then associated allies in each camp. The introduction of nuclear weapons dramatically increases the stake of any future war which is quite a statement when you think about it. The Western world and the global world had just experienced these two massive world wars, which are unusual in the history of warfare. Most wars are limited wars, fought for more limited aims. Now with nuclear weapons, uh, warfare becomes almost unthinkable, and the annihilation of the planet is potentially at stake. For a while, from 1945 to the late 1950s, the only effective delivery mechanism for nuclear weapons is an aerial platform, is an airplane. Uh, that's going to change with the development of nuclear submarines and nuclear missiles on submarines, and it's going to change with uh, terrestrial missiles, uh, ICBMs, intercontinental ballistic missiles. That's not going to happen until the late 50s, early 60s. Airplanes are really the only game in town in terms of the delivery weapon, which makes the United States Air Force, which has the largest nuclear stockpile in the Western world, a particularly important player in the early nuclear standoff as it develops in the Cold War, so much so that the Strategic Air Command inside of the Air Force, which, by the way, gains its independence in 1947 as a result of World War II, this 
Strategic Air Command, which is one component of the United States Air Force in the 1950s, becomes so important to nuclear deterrence that for many years in the 1950s, it has the largest budget of any single component in the Department of Defense. By that, I mean that the Strategic Air Command alone has a larger budget than the United States Army in its entirety, than the United States Navy in its entirety. And it dominates the cultural and social topography of the United States Air Force. This is where you have this legacy of strategic bombers sitting nuclear alert, sitting at a hair trigger's capacity to take off, flying a polar route directly across the North Pole and then down into the Soviet Union to draw bombs in a well-rehearsed plan called the SIOP, which is an acronym, S-I-O-P, Single Integrated Operating Plan. That's essentially the nuclear war plan. It still exists today, and it remains the holy grail of classified documents inside the United States military. These planes practiced that, delivering their part of the PSYOP up until the late 50s. Then later, these other weapon systems will come on board, missiles and, and submarines. That's the scheme of the use of air power in the early Cold War and how it fits in national defense postures as the most important and critical and kinetic operative cog inside of deterrence, making war so terrible that the only effective national posture is to say we must not ever fight it. Matter of fact, for a while, the Strategic Air Command's motto is peace is our profession. But the real world intrudes on these plans. It intrudes in Korea and it intrudes in Vietnam. These are wars that are more limited, fought for more limited aims inside the context of the broader Cold War for a institution like the Air Force and for airmen and women whose life and whose weapon system, the airplane, is born, bred, and nurtured in the era of total war, the two world wars. This is a very unusual thing, this limited war thing. It won't feel right to them. It'll feel like they're being asked to fight with two hands behind their back, or at least one hand behind their back. In point, in fact, limited war for limited aims is the far more normative human experience in the broad sweep of warfare. But for them, they don't have any corporate or personal reference to it because air power's formative years are in the, are in the epic of these total wars. These limited wars will be very frustrating experiences for airmen because they put a great premium on close air support, interdiction, observation reconnaissance, intelligence, some of the classic and oldest forms of military aviation, all the while denying to airmen what they think will be best and most effective use of air power in these wars. The Korean War will last from 1950 to 1953, with the real active kinetic part of that war happening in the first 18 months and then a long period of negotiated stalemate in the last 18 months. The war will basically be a tie, if I can use that analogy. It basically returns the world to a status quo antebellum, to the world on the Korean Peninsula as it existed before the war began. Airmen will walk away from Korea um, frustrated but not downtrodden and not depressed they will tend to exceptionalize the Korean experience. That is, make it exceptional. That is not a model for the future, not a way to think about air power in its normative use. And they'll come back to their ideas of strategic bombing and nuclear deterrence. To be fair to airmen, this is what the country, the United States government, is asking airmen to do most importantly in the 1950s. The Vietnam War, which lasts 
depending upon how you count and what combatants you count, but for the United States will last from 1961 or 62 to 1972, 10 years at least, will last longer, will be more frustrating, and will not result in a tie. It will result in a fairly clear defeat for the United States and their ally, the South Vietnamese. This will create much more than just mere frustration among airmen. Depressed is too strong of a psychological term, but the experience in Vietnam shakes the foundational beliefs of the United States Air Force to its core, particularly the foundational belief in strategic air power and in the Strategic Air Command's mission of nuclear deterrence. So much so that inside of the Air Force itself, there is a sea change that occurs in the 1970s as a result of the Vietnam War in what is known colloquially as the rise of the fighter generals. Up until the mid-1970s, the general officer corps that dominated the United States Air Force and controlled and commanded and led it were overwhelmingly bomber generals, sometimes called derisively the bomber barons, people that came from the Strategic Air Command that believed in that mission and that infused the entire Air Force with it. Because strategic bombing has such an uneven experience in the Vietnam War, and the close air support of ground troops was a much more active part of the war. Fighter generals, close air support generals, begin to supplant bomber generals in the highest leadership ranks in the United States Air Force in the 1970s so that fighter generals are in charge by 1980. A analogous command, known as the Tactical Air Command, really takes ascendancy by 1980. These are the fighter generals pursuing what's called a tactical air power and tactical missions, close air support, interdiction of the battlefield, observation reconnaissance. Interdiction of the battlefield would be missions designed to interdict or cut off or intercept enemy supplies trying to reach the front. So interdiction of the battlefield would comprise trying to destroy railheads, rail marshaling yards, and bridges close to the battlefield. Close interdiction would be those kinds of communication lines behind the enemy lines, maybe within 20 to 30 miles of the enemy line of the front. Deep interdiction would be further back, 50, 60, 70 miles sometimes. And you would try to go after bridges, trucks, and trains, the rail lines and the roads and the bridges that those need to travel across to get supplies and troops to the front line. That's battlefield interdiction. In the 1980s, that sensibility about the importance of tactical aviation has become more powerful inside the United States Air Force and the Strategic Air Command. This is related to a great degree from the experience of the Vietnam War, but also to a refocusing and a reemphasis on traditional battlefields in Europe and trying to figure out how best to deal with a material superiority inside the Soviet Union's order of battle vis-a-vis NATO and the United States' order of battle inside of Western Europe. By that I mean if you looked at any given time from 1970 to 1990 and tried to add up how many Soviet divisions are arrayed on a potential Eastern Front and how many tanks and planes and people under arms they had, and did the same tabulation among the NATO forces, the Warsaw Pact and the Soviet Union would have far more forces. So when you tried to war game this potential unthinkable war in Europe during the late Cold War, the first clash of frontline forces 
and they're almost always directed in a portion of southern Germany called the Fulda Gap. The first line forces would generally fight to parity and exhaustion, but it was the second and third and fourth wave of Warsaw Pact forces coming across the front line that the NATO forces didn't have a capacity to deal with. Air power and tactical air power in close air support to the ground fight plays a very important role in how to solve that riddle for the Western allies and for NATO forces because it was air power that was going to come on in those second and third and fourth waves to interdict these advancing Warsaw Pact forces. So the frustrating experience of Vietnam in combination to a reorientation in defense planning to Europe and to Central Europe and to the traditional battlefields of World War I and World War II create this real ascendancy of the fighter generals inside the Air Force. The Strategic Air Command doesn't disappear in all of this, but it becomes less important. It is at this moment that the end of the Cold War happens and the collapse of the Soviet Union and the invasion of Saddam Hussein into Kuwait from Iraq. The first Gulf War happens at a time when the fighter generals have consolidated their power and support so that once again you find a war, an experiment, a laboratory for this idea of air power happening at a time when there is some turmoil inside the Air Force about how best to use air power. One of the needles that the Western alliance is trying to thread in the Gulf War is to degrade Saddam Hussein's forces sufficiently so that he leaves Kuwait, but not so dramatically that his own regime collapses and creates a vacuum inside of Iraq that other countries could then fill, Iran or resurgent and more powerful Saudi Arabia, even though they are our allies. Air power fits into that debate. What they do in the Gulf War in terms of air power is what they'd done in all these other wars, too, is they did a little bit of all these things. They went downtown, they went to Baghdad, and they tried to kill Saddam Hussein with air power. But they also flew lots of support missions inside of Kuwait and lots of preparatory interdiction missions flowing right before the ground war kicks off. There's about six weeks of an air campaign that happens before the four or five days of the actual ground war. And the air, airmen, not just in the United States, but the coalition airmen, uh, and there's lots of European powers that are involved, spend probably more of their sorties in this supporting role in the first Gulf War and relatively fewer of their sorties in this independent role of strategic attack. Though airmen will always value the strategic attack role a little bit more. The United States will ask airmen to perform that role in the 1990s in these limited conflicts in Bosnia and in Kosovo, where for political reasons and for geopolitical constraints and restraints, we are not going to introduce large ground forces, and NATO's not going to introduce large ground forces. Uh, what we are going to do is use air power as a standoff force multiplier or leverage to assist indigenous forces uh, on the ground who are our allies. And this way, in Bosnia and in Kosovo, the use of Western air power is about as effective in reaching political objectives as air power has ever been in these limited wars for lim limited gains in the 1990s. So much so that in Kosovo, long-standing critics of air power's capacity to do things independently on the battlefield acknowledge that under the right conditions and circumstances, air power can be used autonomously, and air power can be used relatively independent of other military means for relatively decisive effects. There's a rather famous British defense commentator and historian, John Keegan, who writes a very prominent article after the Kosovo War 
he'd been a long-term critic of this idea of independent air power. And he writes after the war that he was wrong, that air power can be decisive alone under the right conditions and circumstances. That's always the key. Uh, but this was something that he wasn't willing to say before Kosovo. So the 1990s is actually a real high watermark for the use of air power in the West. It's used politically. It's used discriminately. It is used in a relatively modest way in terms of resources and in a way that is conservative in terms of lives used or lives cost or lives lost. All the things that early air power theorists theorize about the Julio de Hayes in Italy in the 1920s or the Billy Mitchells in the, in the United States in the 1920s that really pushed this idea that air power can be independent of ground forces. It can be used as a political tool in warfare. It can yield fewer losses in human life. Things change in the world, and they change in unanticipated ways very often. Certainly that happened on September 11th of 2001 when the United States is attacked in New York City and in Washington, D.C., using civilian airliners as guided missiles. That, of course, leads to this decade and a half and counting military activity in places like Afghanistan and Iraq. Air power there has been used in ways that were not anticipated by the end of the 1990s in a supporting role, moments of strategic attack at the front end of military operations, but only fleeting moments. The vast majority of the time, air power has been used in a supporting role and in dramatically different technological fashions. You have in these wars the rise of drone warfare, remotely piloted vehicles. Uh, they're going to be called a lot of different things, but I'll just talk about them as drones. Unmanned aerial vehicle. At first, these were just used for observation reconnaissance, the very first use of air power in World War I. But within the first two years of these wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, you will have an increasingly ubiquitous use of armed drones, firing missiles and dropping bombs, so much so that it's probably the predominant use of air power in these countries at this point in time in, in 2017. This has created a real doctrinal flux for airmen. How do we employ these new weapon systems? What is our relationship now to ground forces who should command and control these drones. It also has led to a renewed discussion and debate about the use of air power in moral or ethical ways. Now, this debate was alive and well in the 1920s. It's a debate that was alive and well during the strategic bombing of Germany and Japan in World War II, and that explodes on the scene for a while with the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the first and only use of atomic weapons in war. Uh, up through the present moment. But over time, it had diminished as an active debate. And certainly by the 1990s, the use of air power is seen as generally a very humane way to prosecute war because it was so precise and discriminating in who was being targeted and who wasn't being targeted. The rise of drone warfare has reignited this very old debate then about morality and warfare with a new twist. And the twist is precisely this that with the use of drones, the proportionality of risk involved between two combatants is fundamentally skewed in favor of one because one of these combatants is flying this drone in a place of relative safety, nowhere near the front, sometimes 10,000 miles away from the front, and making decisions about firing or not firing on an enemy combatant that doesn't enjoy the same insulation from risk. The concern is that in that disproportionality of risk, that these wars become 
merely drive-by shootings and drive-by wars. There is a sensibility that one of the problems with the use of Western air power today is that it demonstrates to third-party actors around the world a willingness among Western powers to kill in pursuit of national objectives, but an unwillingness to die in defense of those objectives. In the theory of just war and ethical war, the proportionality of risk among combatants is very important. If two people that are fighting each other sit at the same general exposure to risk, that will tend to moderate and modulate or make more even their exchange of violence. And when that risk equation becomes so skewed in favor of one and disadvantaged in favor of the other, you will stop making discriminating and careful choices, not only at the tactical level of battle, but even at the grand geopolitical level of statecraft about warfare. And this is what the use of drone warfare has created for us today, this question about just war and about the legal and ethical concerns in the prosecution of war. As a nation and as a service, if all you're concerned about is being the strongest guy on the block, if all you're concerned about is being the world's superpower, you don't necessarily care a lot about that question. But if as a service and as a nation, you also aspire to world leadership, you do care about those questions. You do care about fairness and decency and justice. For 25 years, the United States has been the world's sole superpower but it's also always aspired to leadership and justice and its own self-image is important in that way. It's easy to be cynical about all of this, and I think sometimes the cynicism's just, but it's also an honest impulse. So people in the United States and elsewhere spend time thinking about this issue of fairness. I think third-party actors, particularly European actors, sometimes feel the United States is too aggressive in their use of drones, particularly in places like Pakistan today. And that's a fair enough debate. But from my position here at the Air Force's premier strategy school, listening and talking to people that are intimately involved in the prosecution of our drone wars in the Middle East, there are great involved, gut-wrenching decisions made about when to pull that trigger or not on a drone. We will watch a subject, sometimes for months and weeks at a time, before we make a decision about what to do with that particular subject, uh, so much so that people that are sitting in relative safety in this country 10,000 miles away from an active target will, if not in physical danger, still experience the stresses of combat and the stresses associated with making life and death decisions and deal with things like post-traumatic stress syndrome. We've been doing this long enough to, to know this. There was a movie, Eye in the Sky, that came out a couple of years ago that tried to deal with this in a fairly Hollywood dramatic way. But I have been told by people that are in this business and that do this for a living that it was also not an unfair characterization of the decision-making process. So I think the United States does try to do what they can do in the context of a war, in the context of difficult decision-making processes to try to make their decisions as fair and ethical as they can. But this is not to suggest that the debate about this question isn't fair and isn't legitimate, and that there are people that would disagree with me that are maintaining honest and legitimate positions. I don't know where air power goes in the future. I suspect that we might see one more generation of manned aircraft, and that might be the end of it. And generations of manned aircraft these days last decades 
So I think you're going to have manned aircraft for another 20, 30, maybe 40 years. But at that point, this unmanned aerial aircraft, these drones, will be generally ubiquitous in the sky. That's my suspicion. Air power will remain a part of warfare. And the aspirations of airmen that stretch back to the First World War to expend relatively few resources in a manner that might yield, in the right conditions and circumstances, relatively greater political effect will remain their aspiration. The technological development, the material development, the geopolitical world in which airmen and women live and work will change greatly in unforeseen ways often. But the basic aspiration to be a political instrument at war and to use relatively fewer resources, particularly in terms of life, I'm not so sure it's fair these days to talk about airplanes as not expensive weapon systems. So it's expensive in terms of treasure, but relatively fewer resources in terms of lives yielding relatively greater political effect than just mass attrition warfare on the ground will remain an aspirational belief for airmen going forward, I think.